This is exactly right. The 2020s are getting stressful. What if we go back in time to the 1920s? All those flapper dresses, champagne towers, and good old-fashioned whodunits. Now is your chance with June's Journey, the mobile mystery game that puts your detective skills to the test. This game has everything. You'll play as June Parker investigating the murder of her sister. You'll travel the world searching for clues and explore lavish estates and beautifully designed scenes from the Roaring Twenties. Each is filled with hidden objects that may lead you to the killer. There are twists, turns, and even catchy tunes. And if you play well enough, you might make it to the detective club. There you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Case Files is an award-winning podcast that presents unforgettable true crime stories. Presented by an anonymous host, Case File delves deep into the crimes, investigations, and trials of solved and cold cases from around the world. With more than 250 episodes, the podcast has covered infamous unsolved mysteries, notorious murders, and lesser-known cases that deserve more attention. Discover why everyone from Rolling Stone to Time Magazine is calling it a must-listen experience. Follow Case File wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson. I'm a journalist who's spent the last 25 years writing about true crime. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired cold case investigator who's worked some of America's most complicated cases and solved them. Each week, I present Paul with one of history's most compelling true crimes. And I weigh in using modern forensic techniques to bring new insights to old mysteries. Together, using our individual expertise, we're examining historical true crime cases through a 21st century lens. Some are solved, and some are cold. Very cold. This is Buried Bones. Hey, Kate, how are you doing today? I'm doing so well. I've been in such a perky mood. We're kind of nearing the end of summer, which is just so hot in Texas. What about you in Colorado? Is it already frigid? <laughs> I, picture, <laughs> I picture snow already, and it's August. <laughs> no, we're, we're still a ways away from snow. But we can get snow as early as in, like, mid-October. Um, but, like, you know, in Colorado, the, the weather is always schizophrenic. You know, right now, we it will get warm. It gets into the mid-90s, uh, but it can be down into the 50s overnight. It's just you never know what you're going to get when you wake up here. So I'm trying to picture what you do over the summer. So mountain biking, do you do some lake swimming or do you hop in the <laughs> – is there, is there a river that you wrestle grizzly bear and then jump into afterwards? No, you know, I haven't – I have not gone out on the lakes. And, you know, part of you – know, I used to be a competitive swimmer. Oh. 
Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Part of uh, getting my shoulder repaired was with the hope of being able to take up swimming again for exercise, for fitness. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm just getting to the point of being able to swim. The problem is, is here in Colorado, you know, unlike California, where you have pools on every street corner that you can go swim laps in, you just don't have them here. Mm -hmm. So I might have to resort to diving in a lake and maybe, uh, you know, swimming around a little bit. I just have to make sure I can still swim. So competitive, like college competitive or what were you doing? Okay, no. What were you doing? It was, oh, ages 12 to 15. Oh, okay. And, you know, I was starting to get quite good. In fact, I went to a pre-qualifying meet for the McDonald's Junior Olympics out in Northern California for the 100-yard fly short course. And uh, actually, you know, kind of place in the higher end. If I had continued to swim, I think I could have gotten really good, potentially up into the collegiate level. It's my big regret is that I did not continue swimming. I think they call it, isn't it, sort of like a lifetime sport that you can do is swimming, unlike mountain biking, perhaps, <laughs> if, you're, <laughs> if you're, it seems a little safer. And I think it'd be great for you to get back into. I mean, boy, what good exercise. But I could see if you love the butterfly, how <laughs> shoulder repair would be tough on, on that. It, 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 yes, you know, but my hope is, is to be able to do that again someday. But I have to start slow. So that's what I'm doing. Well, well, that's good. That's good. Well, we're going to a part of the world where there's much cooler weather. I don't know how much swimming they would have done in this time period. Certainly not casual swimming, but maybe. So instead of thinking of wonderful snow-capped mountains or warm lakes for you to dive into, you need to picture dreary, drizzly England in 1855, where things are decidedly less positive than they are for us now, because that's where we're going in time. Dreary? Okay, well, let's let's see where this goes. (laughs) We're not starting out on a positive foot, but let's set the scene. Okay, Paul, here's the scene. A horse race which I have never been into. Have you gone to many horse races? No, not at all. Yeah, I think when I was younger, every now and then, you know, the Kentucky Derby would be on TV, but I've never in person been to a horse race, and it's not my thing. Well, this is a story about a potential serial killer in 1855 England, and it begins with what is probably his first victim, or maybe not. Okay, you got my attention. I know, and it's at a horse race. And we are in Shrewsbury, England. It's on November 13th, 1855. And the man's name is John Parsons Cook. He's 28 years old, and he's a big gambler. To me, I bet big gambler perks your ears up a little bit because we're talking about a potentially high-risk lifestyle depending on how big of a gambler and how high-profile he is, right? Well, yeah, this is most certainly anytime we start dealing with with gambling and, and the financial interest associated with it, you know, this is a prime motive for why violent crime occurs. So, you know, if, if Cook ends up, let's say, badly in debt and something bad happens to Cook, then, of course, suspect pool is, is likely going to be located within whoever he owed money to. Well, let's just say the reverse happens. Oh. John Parsons Cook is very, very lucky or very smart, depending on how smart you think you have to be to pick the winning pony, which is what he did. He won 3,000 pounds 
1855 on this horse race, which is 100,000 pounds today, which is a little over $100,000. That seems like a pretty big purse to me for a horse race. But what do I know? I don't know anything about the Kentucky Derby. I mean, that's a lot of money, no matter what. That's a ton of money. That's a lot of money. My understanding is, though, is that the winnings on these big horse races can be quite large. Yeah. And so he is over the moon, of course, and he holds a big celebratory dinner at a restaurant. He has a lot of alcohol. So this sounds like a pretty bad setup already. Man who is very loud and boisterous about winning a ton of money at a horse race. He's throwing a big dinner and he's getting drunk. He's got, a you know, a lot of friends around him and he's bragging about this money. So one of the newspapers called the Illustrated Times that Marin used as a source for this said, this is the quote, he was tossing off his glass. He complained that there was something in it which burned his throat. And he left the restaurant that night feeling very ill. And he's not feeling any better the next day. And he tells a friend of his that he suspects one of their mutual friends might have dosed him, which, of course, would have been the phrase for poisoned in the 1800s. So something burned in his throat. We know that alcohol is probably a pretty good mask for a poison if that's, in fact, what happened to Cook. This is interesting because in in many ways, this is like, uh, you know, what the modern equivalent of being roofied would be today, right? Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, so somebody, you know, while uh, Cook was distracted, uh, dropped something into his drink. And, you know, if he's drinking something like what I would do is like bourbon neat, which has a burn to it, mm-hmm. you know, whatever this poison could have been, if that's what's going on, just that natural alcohol burn might mask if this poison provides a burning sensation as well. Yeah. And we don't know enough about it yet. We just know he's complaining. He doesn't feel well. He drank something that burned his throat. It doesn't kill him. And he says, nuts to this, I'm leaving. I'm getting out of this area. And he goes back to his hometown in England, which is about 40 miles away from where we were, Shrewsbury. Well, let me ask you this. In terms of, so he wins this, it was 3,000 pounds. Mm-hmm, 3,000 pounds. So does he actually walk away from the horse track with this money in cash? Is he given some sort of note to where he would go to a bank and get money? You know, that's what I'm trying to figure out is why is he a target at this this restaurant bar area? It sounds like he has cashed in when he is on his way to his hometown. But he has a ticket. So he cashes in, he's got his money, and he heads to Rugeley is where it's called, and he goes to his hometown. He asks a friend to come with him, William Palmer, who's a doctor. Palmer is a great choice to go with him because he was at the racetrack with him, and he also lives in that town. So Palmer goes with him, and Cook continues to feel sick. He got over it, and then he felt sick again. Same sort of icky feeling. There's a lot of now he's complaining of a tremendous amount of stomach pain. And at this point, you know, if I were Palmer, I would be thinking, yeah, this probably is more than food poisoning. Because wouldn't you get over food poisoning within generally 24 hours or so? We're talking about a couple of days later. Well, I think for, you know, food poisoning in which it impacts the stomach, like where you're throwing up and stuff, that can actually hit you pretty quick because it's, you know, the bacteria is inside your stomach and now you're throwing up as your body is trying to get rid of whatever is is releasing a toxin into your system. Mm-hmm. 
with food poisoning, it can progress through your digestive tract. And so you may end up developing additional symptoms. But yeah, it, it sounds like if he has got ongoing for like for days afterwards, and this maybe it's not food poisoning, maybe he was right and that somebody slipped him something in his drink. Yeah. And I think that this makes a lot of sense because this is lasting a long time. And this would make me uncomfortable as Dr. Palmer is watching all of this happen, his friend really in, in agony. We have another friend who joins, Mr. Jones, who comes in and everybody is trying to pay attention to Cook. And then he recovers and he feels good. But sometime a few days after that, so this is about eight days after the first incident, he has a huge setback. We see a recurrence of the symptoms that he had when he was at the racetrack. We have a lot of hurried response, including from Mr. Jones and Dr. Palmer. So a little after 11 o'clock on November 21st, Jones contacts Palmer and says, listen, Cook is in major pain. You have to do something. So he gives him morphine, and these are morphine pills. That seems like not a great way to treat stomach ailment, but maybe I'm wrong. I guess if he's treating the pain that's coming with the stomach ailment, I'm just trying to think of the thought behind in 1855 giving someone morphine pills. That's what it sounds like to me. Morphine has historically been used for pain, and it's a very good pain reliever. It also, just like any opiate, can cause constipation. And I know some people will have an upset stomach as a result of taking an opiate like morphine. So it, it could compound his symptoms if he's one of those individuals that doesn't tolerate the morphine well. Well, I'm a little looking side-eye at Jones because it seems like every time something is happening to Cook in this room, he's calling Dr. Palmer to respond to some trauma that Cook is going through. Again, about an hour later, after the morphine had kicked in, Cook calmed down, seemingly went to sleep. Dr. Palmer went to sleep. Jones comes knocking again and says, you need to respond. He's crying out now. Palmer throws on his clothes and he's down the hall within three minutes. He had dressed so quickly. And he hands Cook two more pills to take. Now, these are ammonia pills. And I know I gave this to you as an assignment. I am so clueless about why you would ever use ammonia pills pills for anything. And clueless, frankly, that these even existed. What's your idea? I did uh, take a look about the ammonia pills because I hadn't heard of ammonia pills before, but it sounds like just like today where you have smelling salts, okay. where somebody is about to faint, you know, you, you crack the smelling salt ampule and now you get that ammonia release and the person is able to come to a little bit better. And some athletes will use ammonia, you know, before an athletic event in order to try to get energized. And it turns out that ammonia is a respiratory stimulant. Huh. So for these ammonia pills, this isn't something that you ingest, you know, orally. It's actually you put them up your nose. What? I did not yeah. know that. <laughs> Do you imagine? So what, the casing dissolves or something like a capsule? I don't think this is something in which you, you are completely absorbing these pills nasally. Nasally? <laughs> Am I saying that right? <laughs> I think that's a word. We'll say it's a word. It's, it's okay. close enough. <laughs> but it's just like, you know, imagine the ammonia salts. It, it's going to be where now you have this off-gassing of the ammonia that you, of course, you know, the nasal cavity will absorb that rapidly in order to get that respiratory stimulant. You know, I'm not sure why ammonia pills would be used in this particular set of circumstances, 
But maybe Dr. Palmer thought he just was struggling to breathe, yeah. uh, was about to faint, was lightheaded and decided the ammonia pill was the way to go. Would ammonia pill up the nose kill him? If I just said, Paul, give me one of those ammonia pills, I'm going to give it a shot. There's no way it's going to poison me, right? I would probably kill me if I tried it, but, but I couldn't imagine. Um, as far as I know, no. You okay. know, this was something that would, would be a typical medication back in the day. Okay. This is not helpful at all. These ammonia pills make him go into fits. There's a lot of wild shrieking. Cook tosses about in fearful convulsions. This is the description, the physical description of what happens next. His limbs were so rigid that it was impossible to raise him, though he entreated that they would do so as he felt that he was suffocating. Every muscle was convulsed. His body bent upward like a bow. They turned him over on his side. The action of the heart gradually ceased, and then he's dead. Wow. That's a dramatic death. And and I, I bet they're not exaggerating. They they exaggerated a lot in the 1800s, <laughs> dramatized. But this sounds terrible. Yeah, what, it sounds like he was absolutely miserable in the last moments of his life. Yeah. I mean, does that all tally with a poison, like a painful poison death, just feeling completely out of control in your own body? Yeah. You know, to have such a rapid impact on the body, this sounds like a very large dose of an acute poisoning. Yeah. Well... John Cook's stepfather thought the same. So his stepfather is a man named William Stevens, and he comes to Rugeley and is immediately suspicious because Cook is only 28 years old. And he died very suddenly, very violently. And William Stevens, the stepfather, says, I want an investigation. So now we know that Cook's horse race winnings have been taken by another person. So someone who was with him at that horse track, who knew he had that money, had taken the money. Okay, so just maybe to clarify at this point, Cook is living with Jones, or they're at least in the same building together? Yes, so Jones and Palmer are staying with Cook. Okay. And they're all kind of from the same area. So they're looking after him is what it sounds like. But you do have two men who eight days after he initially has these stomach issues, eight days later, it's repeated. So it seems unlikely these are from his original conditions, right? It seems like he got better. Something must have happened between the time that he recovers and the time that he dies, no? As I'm thinking about this, you know, when when you are dealing with poisonings, especially if it's something that appears to be repeated over time, generally that's where you start looking at people who have access to the victim Mm -hmm. versus, you know, somebody sends something or doses the victim from afar with the hope that that single dose will kill. We see this when, let's say, a spouse kills their partner with chronic dosing of a poison. It's usually over time, and they do it in a way because they have constant access. Now with Cook, it sounds like he was dosed away from his residence, Mm -hmm. and then, but he's now being dosed inside his residence. So this is where who has access to him. Of course, you've got Palmer and Jones. And then is there anybody else flowing in and out of of this uh, building? Is there, you know, food being brought in or or different, you know, drinks, something that he would be ingesting? Well, the police don't pay much attention to other suspects because 
weird things start popping up, and they are alarmed. So there is a postmortem. There is a doctor who's working on his stomach contents, and there is a mystery man who made access to this building and who barged the doctors from behind, pushed the doctors from behind, and spilled the contents of his stomach all over the floor to try to ruin it, then took off. And nobody really could identify this mystery man. This is during the autopsy? Yes. Somebody entered the building and essentially pushed over the entire cart to try to ruin the contents. Oh, wow. I mean, literally, you know, we hear of of people trying to derail an investigation and that they're obviously trying to send this out for toxicology results. And this is not working very well. They also find out that there was a boy who was supposed to be carrying the samples, kind of delivering them to the person who was going to do the testing. Some mystery man tried to bribe this boy into giving him the stomach contents before the county coroner could get a hold of it. So somebody's really inserting themselves into this investigation. Sure. Now, is this mystery man, do they get a description of him at all? Well, it's someone that people know. So here's what we come down to. We have a doctor who has been treating Cook, and we have a friend, Mr. Jones, who is there every time Cook is in pain and then requests help from the doctor. Of these two people, I know you're going to say a Paul Hole saying, I don't have enough information yet, but of these two people, who seems like the likelier person? You have a doctor who probably knows about poisons, but you have a guy there who probably doesn't have a lot of money, who could use these winnings, and who's there. So what would you, as a, an officer, who would you concentrate on first? <laughs> yeah, I don't have enough information. Oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, well, I, I think you have to consider both, right? Yep. Yeah. Because again, if it's looking like there has been repeated poisonings of Cook, it is going to be people who have access, and it's Jones and Palmer. Mm-hmm. What stands out to me is after Palmer, I'm assuming, puts these ammonia pills into Cook's nasal cavity, that's when he, all of a sudden he really goes into a convulsive fit where yep. now the muscles are stiffening up um, and he dies from this. And I'm now wondering, were these truly ammonia pills that Palmer gave Cook? That's a really, really good question, because now we're going to talk about what ends up happening with the discovery of this mystery man. So the police go and they start questioning everybody who was at this racetrack, and they go and meet a man named Ishmael Fisher, who is friends with Cook. Cook told Fisher, I think somebody is trying to poison me that night where he drank something that burned his throat. And Ishmael said, who do you think would have ever done this of all the people here? And he said, my friend, Dr. William Palmer. Really? My question is, why would he then allow Palmer to attend to him? Because remember, he recovered. Palmer traveled back to his hometown with him. Jones met them there. He said, I think William Palmer is the one who did it. So I don't know why he would then allow Palmer to give him things, but stuff starts, you know, picking up against Palmer at this point in the story. Okay, and and during this conversation out at the horse track, does he indicate why he thinks Palmer is trying to poison him? He doesn't, but we start learning a lot of information about William Palmer. A lot of it is pretty disturbing. Trust me at this point that Cook knows what the issue is, and that's why he's concerned about Palmer. But let me tell you some very simple things that the police start to put together. Number one, they start tracking, once they hear this from Ishmael, they start tracking William Palmer's movements, and they find out a couple of interesting things. One 
is that ammonia pills have to be prepared far in advance because otherwise, you know, they evaporate. Again, I know nothing about ammonia pills. I didn't know that. But this is not something that you can kind of just put up on the fly. There's not a bottle of ammonia pills that you can pull out and give someone. You have to prepare them. And remember, when Jones asked Palmer to respond that last time, Palmer said, I'll be right there. And he was there in three minutes. He just threw on his dressings with these ammonia pills. So the police, after talking to experts, say, those can't have been ammonia pills. They had to have been something else because he didn't have time to prepare them correctly. Oh, you know what? That makes so much sense. Ammonia is is volatile. That's why you can inhale it. Yeah. And so if it just sits there, then this volatile chemical eventually just evaporates, and now you're just left with a tablet of binding material. Now, putting a pill up someone's nose, is it feasible that something else other than ammonia got into his system? I mean, could you just shove any kind of poison up a person's nose and it would go quickly into their system as quickly as going through your stomach? Well, I wouldn't say that, you know, just any poison would be absorbed through the mucous membranes, but, you know, many could be. I mean, you think about just, you know, recreational drug use, you know, cocaine salt. Now people snort it. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's other drugs that are ingested by putting it up in the nose because it has such a large uh, surface area of this mucous membrane. And you get that big rush as that drug is being absorbed into the body because it's going straight to the brain in essence. Mm -hmm. So poisons that would be soluble that could pass through the mucous membrane, any of those poisons could potentially be. Now, I don't know off the top of my head which ones would be more prone to being absorbed than others, but I imagine that there's a wide variety. I think I can tell you one. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> so you remember that in the 1800s, in the 1700s too, it was very common that if you were a doctor and you were requesting something very strong as a poison or a medicine, that when you went to a chemist, you would have to sign a book and how much you got and how much you spend and what the amount was. So they discovered after canvassing this town where both of these men were from, Palmer and Cook, they discovered a chemist had had a book signed by Palmer and he had bought strychnine. Oh. Just days before Cook died. Okay. So I'm going to guess that strychnine might be one of those pills or one of those poisons that you're talking about that might dissolve well into the nasal cavities. But but I, I'm just assuming. Strychnine is actually absorbed in a, in a variety of ways in the body. I'm not seeing specifically if it's absorbed uh, across the mucous membrane, but mm-hmm. it can be orally ingested. It can be inhaled. Uh, it could be injected. I would imagine that strychnine is is a molecule that will probably rapidly pass across the mucous membrane in the nasal cavity. Okay. Well, that's enough for police. Once they see that log with the chemist and they find out about ammonia pills and they know that John Cook was suspicious of Dr. Palmer, all of this convinces them to arrest Dr. Palmer, even though the evidence is starting to look a little shaky because the autopsy, they were able to gather up the stomach contents and blood and everything else they needed to send it off. The test did not show evidence of strychnine. You had to do homework here. They said the only of note substance that was found in his body was of antimony, which is a metallic compound that was used in medicine at that time. Now, this was part of your homework. What did you figure out about that? A metallic compound? Well, antimony is, you know, part of this class. It's it's a heavy metal like lead is. Of course, lead is something that you can be poisoned with. Uh, antimony 
also can be used as a poison and was frequently used as a poison. Okay. It does happen to cause the types of symptoms, the really painful stomach cramps, inflammation of the stomach, uh, eventually diarrhea. But most importantly, it causes this muscle spasms that Cook was displaying after receiving these so-called ammonia pills. Hmm. Well, this is the problem they're having is because in the 1850s, strychnine was really difficult to test for. This must have been a great time for poisoners because it was so available. And like I said, toxicology had not caught up yet. So you have all of these poisons available, especially to a doctor. The police are having a hard time using just the circumstantial evidence, but they've arrested Palmer and he's definitely going to go on trial. So what happens in the 1850s is that investigators and doctors have to go off the symptoms, just as what we've talked about, Mm -hmm. if the medicine, the poison doesn't show up in a toxicology report. So in this case, many experts are convinced that it was a deliberate poisoning, but that's not the unanimous conclusion. There are some experts that say Cook's death is something like tetanus which produces almost the exact same symptoms as strychnine poisoning. Does that sound right? Tetanus? Well, and that's just like with the antimonious where, you know, the way that it impacts the muscular system, you get, it's, it's all like when somebody dies and you get rigor, you know, where the muscles really stiffen up mm-hmm. with strychnine and antimony, you can also get this convulsive spasms of the muscles. And so now as I'm thinking about this, there may have been two poisons used on Mm. Cook. One that is not detectable using 1850s technology, and then one that they could detect, which was the antimony. That makes sense because he gave him a morphine pill to ingest, and then he gave him what we assume is strychnine pills, something laced, you know, ammonia, the ammonia pill. So you've got a couple of different substances in his body. Now, I don't know what these pills look like, but certainly you could tell the difference between somebody swallowing a pill and someone sticking a capsule up their nose. That's interesting. I had not thought of that, that there were two different poisons. And God knows what he got eight days earlier. We don't know. It wasn't enough to kill him. That may be why you see Palmer resorting to a different substance, as he tried maybe several times, possibly with antimony or strychnine. And mm-hmm. for whatever reason, it wasn't a high enough dose. It wasn't ingested fully, and he's getting frustrated. And now that he has direct access to cook with these ammonia pills, he uses the different substance, thinking, okay, now I'm going to be able to give him something that will kill him. Yep. This is why we talk about sometimes poisoners would practice on animals just to see what the dosage would be like, which doesn't seem particularly accurate. But I guess it's at least good to see that it works, that a poison works. Well, for for the poisoner, yes, you know, that's that's where these trial runs are critical because they need to at least have the confidence that they can apply the poison and then separate themselves and have plausible deniability. Well, now let's get into the motive, because remember, Cook was suspicious of Palmer. I think that Cook knew that Palmer was having some big problems. So when police investigate, they find out that he is nearly three million pounds of today money in debt, 20,000 pounds 
1855, almost three million pounds today in debt. In debt to who? Well, just in general, he had a bad gambling habit. Okay. We talk about this all the time. Debt is not the most sensational reason, you know, that would catch the newspaper headlines to kill somebody, but it happens. This is financial motive. You know, there's many different versions of financial assets, whether you are trying to seek gaining the asset, such as robbing a bank, to, uh-oh, you know, this debt aspect, my life is in danger if I don't repay that debt. So now you have to come up and try to find a source of these financial assets in order to eliminate this debt and lower your risk of becoming a victim of violent crime. Yep. So the police, of course, are convinced that Palmer did it, even though they can't get a straight answer on how he did it, what kind of poison it was. We see that there's something in his system. We know that he's in lots of debt. And then the police say, I wonder if this is a new gambling habit. This can't be. And I wonder if this is the first time that he's ever been in debt. It can't be. So they start looking at his life. And since 1849, and this is now we're talking about six years later, since 1849, within six years, eight people have died under sudden or mysterious circumstances in Dr. Palmer's circle. That's a lot, even for the Victoria era, where (laughs) everything around the corner could kill you. That's a lot of people to die, and I can give you details on each one. I think we're looking at a serial killer, personally. Mm -hmm. The 2020s are getting stressful. What if we go back in time to the 1920s? All those flapper dresses, champagne towers, and good old-fashioned whodunits. Now is your chance with June's Journey, the mobile mystery game that puts your detective skills to the test. This game has everything. You'll play as June Parker investigating the murder of her sister. You'll travel the world searching for clues and explore lavish estates and beautifully designed scenes from the Roaring Twenties. Each is filled with hidden objects that may lead you to the killer. There are twists, turns, and even catchy tunes. And if you play well enough, you might make it to the detective club. There you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. This is interesting. Do all die in in a similar manner? Does it all look like it's poisoning? Yes. And these are people very close to him. Okay. And the fact that he can get away with this over and over again is interesting. It is. I mean, again, that's the power of being a poisoner in the 1800s. It was hard to detect. You're a doctor. You have, a, am assuming, a better notion of how to, you know, poison someone in the amounts you need than the average Joe on the street. So he's at an advantage and the investigators are at a, a pretty big disadvantage. No, for sure. And were all these other victims, is this a similar set of circumstances where they have some sort of financial asset that ends up going missing? 
Well, let's just jump into this. I'll list them off and you can give me your reaction to each one. It varies, but it is all financial, it seems to me. Okay, we're going to start with Mary Thornton, who is the first that we know of. I mean, I now absolutely believe what you believe, which is you cannot predict when somebody started or stopped killing people because I'll just say this is what we know. So we know in 1849 that Mary Thornton was Dr. Palmer's mother-in-law. She did not like him. She did not want her daughter to marry him, but she did loan him money. So for some reason, the Palmers convince Mary to move in with them, which seems a little off-brand for Dr. Palmer, who I just can't see being generous in any way possible. Within two weeks, the mother-in-law gets sick and she dies. And the Palmers receive 12,000 pounds in inheritance. Let me go back up here to look and see what my costs. I know I need to have a 1855 to 2023 calculator, but we're talking about quadruple what he got from Cook's winnings. So they walked away with looks like 400,000 pounds of today money when she died because she left her daughter an inheritance. This was, you know, a big windfall for them. It was a huge amount of money at the time, but the the BBC said that Dr. Palmer was bitterly disappointed with the money because it was paid quarterly to his wife by the trustees. So this was set up as a trust. So he was mad because it didn't come as one big chunk. But still, I mean, goodness, it sounds like he was on an allowance a little bit from this inheritance. And that probably doesn't satisfy any sort of gambling debt that he had. Yeah, so he, he, in essence, he most certainly is aware of this potential inheritance. And in, in essence, now it's the luring of the victim, so he has direct access in order to do the poisoning. He may not have been aware of the terms of the trust. Yeah. And, and now it's like, oh, he's got somebody who's saying, you owe me X amount, and he's not getting that after this first instance of poisoning Mary Thornton. Right. The next year... There's a man named Leonard Bladen. Leonard liked horse racing, as did Dr. Palmer, and they kind of shared their love of it. They would go to the track together. So Bladen loaned Dr. Palmer some money, and Bladen wanted his money back. And Dr. Palmer said in 1850, sure, come on over. And shortly after, Bladen died. And it sounds like the same thing, poisoning, unexpected death that I'm sure was attributed to a stomach ailment or something else or, (laughs) you know, tetanus or something. Yeah. You know, he's doing this because he can. Yep. Yeah. So it's it's easy for him to do this. He figures he can easily get away with it. uh, You know, so he's now resorting to this over and over again. You know, this is very different. When you said when you started this episode, you're talking about a a serial killer. And, you know, for me, I use the term predator, you know, somebody mm-hmm. who is preying upon uh, a victim in order to satisfy, you know, self-gratification and that's its fantasy. Mm-hmm. With Dr. Palmer right now, I'm not getting a sense there's a fantasy component, no. but he's predatory for financial purposes. Yeah. When you talk to people who study serial killers, like the folks who do the database in Florida, you know, their definition is obviously, I think it's three or more with a cooling off period in between. They don't talk about strangers. You know, gang members are considered serial killers if you've got people who are killing people over and over again. When I say serial killer, it's not our society's definition of a serial killer where they get gratification out of it. In the 1850s, he would be called a multiple murderer. And these are specific. I mean, it is totally money driven. So let me tell you about the next four, which is, I will say, the most upsetting. 
So between 1851, so he's killed his mother-in-law, he's killed his friend who's the gambler with horse racing. Between 1851 and 1854, Dr. Palmer and Anne had four children. They all died. Mm. So Elizabeth died at two months. Henry died at one month. Frank died within just a few hours after he's born. And then a little boy named John died. He was just a few days old. All of this within a three-year period. So, you know, people now are saying, well, he must have done it for financial gain because he couldn't afford these kids. So you're going from insurance fraud and, you know, you know, inheritance, getting inheritance, you know, getting out of a debt by killing Leonard. And now he can't afford these kids and he's killing them. But also these are all kids at ages where it wasn't suspected because, you know, childbirth deaths were common. But this many in this time period is unusual. Yeah. So he's he's eliminating his own kids and, and in part, you know, the financial burden that they would pose as they got older to, you know, be able to support them, to feed them. So he is proactively killing these adult victims prior to his kids, obviously financial motive. Now, the killing of the kids, you know, in, in part, you could say, yeah, it's, it's because they are going to have a financial burden. He recognizes he can't afford that because he's probably got somebody that he owes money to. Mm-hmm. So in, in some ways, this is almost like a preventive type of homicide. It's kind of a weird way to look at it mm-hmm. in terms of he is preventing the impact that the kids are going to have on his life and his financial assets by committing the homicide because he's got this debt, probably gambling debt. That is an interesting twist in terms of how killers typically think. And his poor wife, having four children within three years and they all die, yeah. must have been devastating for her. I mean, how horrific. No, absolutely. You know, and, and this, in many ways, just shows such a lack of empathy yeah. by Palmer, you know. And so now, are you dealing with somebody who possibly has a psychopathy? Everything about what he is doing is for himself. And, you know, this this woman that he supposedly loves, he doesn't care that she's suffering because he's killing their kids. He doesn't care about the kids' loss of life. It's all about him. And I will say Dr. Palmer is not restrained from doing this simply for financial purposes. Sometimes if he just doesn't like you, you could end up dead. He has an uncle named Joseph Bentley. He's about 62 years old. And it sounds like Palmer just was pissed off by this guy. And there's no financial incentive, but Palmer, it sounds like, poisons him. He ends up the same way everybody else does. Now, and this is in 52. So this is, let me give you the timeline here. This is after the mother-in-law after the the gambling friend of his, and this is looks like about after the second child. So he's four murders in when he kills his uncle for no good reason except the guy is boorish and verbally abusive towards him. He's very vindictive. Yeah, extremely. Except now we're back to the financial motive. So we have two more deaths. He has Anne, who is his long-suffering wife, and you probably know where this is going. Mm-hmm. He takes out a very hefty 13,000-pound insurance policy on her, which is probably close to half a million pounds or half a million dollars now. And he pays the first and the only premium before she dies. So let me give you more details because it's interesting. He is very deeply in debt. They married just two years before he killed his mother-in-law, her mother. 
1854, he is more in debt than he's ever been. He's also having extramarital affairs. And she, of course, has had depression because she's lost all these children. He takes out the insurance policy. He pays the premium. And then she dies. But her death comes in the middle of a deadly cholera outbreak. So the symptoms were consistent with cholera. You know, of course, people think that she was killed for a financial motive, but we just did a season for Tenfold of a woman who was accused of killing four members of her family using poison. But with the exception of the last death in Annie Crawford's case, three out of the four people died of what looked to be feasible, natural causes for that time period. So cholera can really seem like poison. Yeah, you think about like oral ingestion of these poisons and you get the the really upset stomach, you got the vomiting, diarrhea. Now, I mean, that you can hide your poisoning underneath this guise of this disease state that is infectious. It's going around the population. And without modern instrumentation to detect, you know, the poisons, it'd be so easy to have the deaths based on the symptoms that were displayed prior to death to be dismissed to this infectious agent, the cholera, versus, oh, there's something suspicious here. And so nobody's looking deep into this at all. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So Anne has died. The insurance company has given him the 13,000 pounds. And suddenly his brother gets sick. And this is, you know, six months later, maybe, Walter Palmer. Dr. Palmer had taken out a 13,000-pound, same thing as his wife, life insurance policy on his own brother, who suffered from severe alcoholism. And when Walter died, Dr. Palmer never collected the money because he went to the insurance company and they became suspicious. It's the same insurance company that insured him for his wife. They had just paid out the same policy to him for his wife, and now he's coming for money from his brother. And so they said, we're not paying you anything, which I think was the impetus for him to kill John Cook, because he didn't have to go through an insurance company. There was no policy to deal with. It was this guy's racetrack winnings, and that's it. Well, Palmer got careless. Very. You know, (laughs) he got overconfident. He got careless. This also happens with your your prototypical serial killers, where, you know, they do all this pre planning and the the early cases that they're doing, you know, but as they have success, they start making mistakes. They don't pay as much attention because they're overly confident. Well, that's what's going on with Palmer here. I mean, he's using the same insurance company for the uncle that he just got paid for by the wife. I mean, how does he not think that that insurance company is going to go, hey, something's not right here? Well, then when he is connected to John Cook, everything falls apart for him. As I said, he was arrested. They start looking at the backgrounds of everybody who's died in his life. And investigators think they have a shot at trying to connect him to the deaths of his wife, Anne, and his brother, Walter, because they were the most recent. So you're talking about 1854 and 1855, and we're in 1855 now. So they exhume Anne and Walter's bodies and no luck. They cannot find anything there. So I had a question about that. Let's just say he used strychnine on everybody. I don't know if that's the case, but if he did it on everybody, do we have any idea how long strychnine would stay in the body? Would it be years? Because I know when I dealt with John Reginald Christie in my first book, The Serial Killer, they showed signs of carbon monoxide poisoning 
for quite a long time after they were buried, and that's how they were able to connect him. Is that the case with other poisons? Does it stay in your system? No, every every substance is different in terms of how the body treats it, how the body metabolizes it, how long it will stay in the system. Strychnine, I'm, I'm looking at it right now, strychnine has a very rapid half-life okay. within 10 hours. The body, as soon as strychnine is in the body, it is rapidly metabolizing it. Uh, so it gets broken down very quickly. And even though, let's say, somebody dies within a few hours after the strychnine ingestion, that doesn't mean that the biological processes in the body just stop. They continue. So there is still metabolic activity in this supposed dead body. So substances like strychnine would still continue to be degraded and there'd be a smaller and smaller amount left. And now you're talking about years, several years later where they're exhuming these bodies, you've got decompositional processes. Uh, this is before the days of embalming, I think, if I remember what you told me in, in previous episodes. Yeah, no embalming. So, you know, decomposition, bacterial aspects, uh, and then the lack of sensitive technologies to detect this type of toxin. The antimony likely would be something that would still be in the tissues. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not something that is going to be broken down. But the strychnine, I think, would be, and, and very quickly, they probably would not have been able to detect it, um, even if they had samples uh, at autopsy. Strychnine seems like almost like the perfect poison. I have thought about that, asking poison experts, what is the perfect poison? And then I fear that I will be sued by the family <laughs> of some husband <laughs> who has been killed. <laughs> Kate Winkler Dawson told us all how to poison with the perfect poison. So I haven't asked. But I mean, just as a cursory notice here, I, it sounds like strychnine is a pretty decent poison if it leaves the body as quickly as you say. Um, I've got my concerns, Kate. I, I think I'm going to be very careful when we get together and have drinks. If there's any burning sensation. It's bad whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Palmer, boy, has a hard time. He goes on trial in 1856 at Old Bailey, which is pretty much exclusively when I talk about trials in England. They most of the time happened at Old Bailey. It is a classic old courthouse. That's where John Reginald Christie was on on trial. And Palmer is on trial only for John Parsons Cook, so the gambler. And, you know, they just don't have enough evidence. They feel like they barely have enough evidence here because, you know, a lot of this is circumstantial. They just cannot connect. No one saw him pour the poison, strychnine, into a cup of this man's drink. There's just no direct, direct evidence. He is nicknamed the Prince of Poisoners, which, you know, is a catchy little nickname. It has caught national attention. Unbelievable. I mean, he has just become this star prisoner, somebody who everybody is focusing on, I think mostly out of fear, to think that the family man who lives next door to you, who treats your family potentially, who sees you at your most vulnerable, has the ability to kill you. I think is unthinkable to people now, but especially in the 1800s. Yeah, but we, we see this today, you know, with the nurses or the doctors that end up killing their patients over and over and over again. You know, there there is definitely a pathology there. There's something going on psychologically with this type of offender. Palmer most certainly could have pursued other resources in order to deal with his gambling debt, mm -hmm. 
But he chose to kill these people, and he's relying on his skill set. That's what offenders do. Different offenders have different skill sets, and they rely on their skill sets in order to accomplish the crime. In Palmer's case, you know, you, you said that they were struggling in terms of trying to prove this case against Cook. And, and investigatively, you know, one of the things I'm wondering is, is, well, did they follow the money? You always, in financial cases, you have to follow the money. So what happened to Cook's, you know, horse track winnings? Did they ever find that? They are not saying that. They are saying that somebody has that money, it is gone, and that he was, really, they concentrate on weighed down by debt. And I want to point this out because I don't know if a lot of people understand this. There was something called a debtor's prison in America and in the UK. So you would not declare bankruptcy like you could now and say, sorry, you know, this was a different situation. You would be imprisoned if you could not pay your debt and potentially executed at some point. That is what he was trying to avoid by doing all of this. And at the same time, of course, he had a gambling issue. So all of this culminates in this these desperate acts that, of course, I would just say, well, this is a one-off. It's John Cook. And, you know, he wanted to pay off these debts, but he's obviously been doing this for years. So you're right. I, I think there's just something ingrained in him. I don't know if his mother-in-law was the first either. I think that's the one that they thought was the origin of all of this. I'm not so convinced. Yeah, I think you go back to his medical school training. At a certain point, the light bulb goes off and he recognizes, oh, I can do this. So, you know, when he starts getting into debt and there's this inheritance with the mother-in-law, you know, he may be already well-versed at doing this, possibly not necessarily for financial reasons, but we've seen with the boorish uncle, well, he didn't like him, so he killed him. Mm -hmm. So did he have some enemies in the past that he decided, well, I'll get rid of them because I know I can. I know how to do it utilizing these substances. I think one of the things that's interesting about this case is the media really hated this guy. I mean, they really felt like he was this uppity doctor who had gone and killed all of these people. And do I think he killed eight other people besides John Parsons Cook? Probably, yes. But could some of these deaths, particularly the ones attributed to his children, have been natural Yes. That doesn't mean that he doesn't deserve to be put on trial for this murder. But I found this with Edward Ruloff from, you know, Tenfold More Wicked, where people were pinning everything on him. You know, he was a boogeyman. I mean, I, I often joke that JFK shooting would have been pinned on Edward Ruloff just because everybody wanted to connect. They wanted answers for these cases that were unsolved. It sounds like William Palmer turned into the boogeyman for this area in 1856 when he went on trial. This is a natural tendency, and I've actually fallen victim to this myself, what I call overlinkage of cases, where you find an offender that is committing a certain type of crime, and then you see, oh, there's these other cases in the same area, the same type of crime, and so you think it must be this guy. You know, typically for me, it was your fantasy-motivated, sexually-motivated serial predators. Uh, It turns out, well, no, there's actually more than one of those types of offenders operating in the same area at the same time, committing the same type. A crime. Yep. Here, you potentially have natural deaths, such as those potentially from a disease like cholera that mimic the symptoms of the poisoning. 
And back then, they couldn't differentiate these necessarily, and so they just overlinked those natural deaths as being homicides. They obviously didn't charge him with those homicides, but the press and the people who are reading about him are just going, yes, he must be responsible for all of them. However, one thing I will say with Palmer is, well, there's smoke there. Yeah. Circumstantially, there's smoke there, and I would lean towards, yes, he's likely responsible for a majority of those deaths. Well, the jury agreed, and they found him guilty on June 14th, 1856, and he was hanged. 300,000 people showed up to watch him be executed. I have reported on a lot of public executions. This is probably the biggest crowd I've ever heard of. 300,000, a town, a, a small city arrived to watch him be executed, and his last words were, I am innocent of poisoning Cook dot, 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 by strychnine. Oh. And with that, <laughs> he lives in infamy because what the hell does that mean? <laughs> it's because it was the antimony that took him out. <laughs> he, I didn't kill him with strychnine. It didn't work, so I used antimony. But you 300,000 rubes wouldn't understand that. I'm not even going to stand here and explain the difference between antimony and strychnine. So there you go. I'm just going to say, yes, I did it, but not with strychnine. Ominous words, boy. And that's what makes this case such a mystery because there are people who say, definitive proof. Where is that definitive proof? Yes, he bought the strychnine. Yes, his signature's there. Where is the strychnine, Dr. Palmer? I don't know. It's somewhere around here. I have no idea. So, you know, it's loosey-goosey, but obviously the jury seemed to make the right decision. Yeah, I think so. You know, even though it is circumstantial, you know, these are strong circumstances. Yes. And in this day and age, with modern technologies, I, I always like to see uh, supporting physical evidence, objective evidence, you know. Mm -hmm. But back then, the circumstances are all that they would, would have been able to use, and the circumstances are pretty strong. I agree. Circumstances certainly landed innocent people in prison and kept guilty people out of prison, but I think in this case they got it right. So, boy... <laughs> I love a good poisoner case. And this was very twisty and turny. I mean, this guy potentially killed nine people and got away with it for so long, partially because of his station in life, partially because of the time period, partially because the lack of forensics available, his reputation, the method that he used. I mean, this was sort of a perfect storm where he got away with it for so long and still he died in debt. Yeah, it, you know, and, and and the fact that he, I mean, he's making the mistakes towards the end in terms of you know continuing to poison people that he is directly associated with, alerting yep. the insurance company by going back to the same spot. I'm wondering because you know early on you say you know Cook is talking to Ishmael and he's saying, hey, mm -hmm. you know, I'm concerned Palmer is is poisoning me or going to poison me. What did Cook know? <laughs> he must have known something about Palmer. I think if you are chatting at the track, probably money is coming up. Probably a desperate look is coming up. Mm -hmm. You know, they're all there doing the same thing. And so this was too much for Palmer. He felt, seems like to me, I mean, that felt like the easy way out. It's so interesting to see the progression of all of these cases. He doesn't do enough to John Cook the first time. It progresses. You know, with his mother-in-law, there's an inheritance. There's getting rid of the kids. There's insurance fraud. You know, finally, it's like, well, I'm just not going to deal with the insurance company anymore, and I'm just going to kill someone for their money. So it's not often that we get to see 
sort of the span of somebody's criminal murderous career like this. And that's why I thought this case was really great to bring you. No, this is this is excellent. You know, it really just strikes me. I've said this before. Never underestimate the depravity of the human male. And usually <laughs> that's in the context of, you know, sexual components yeah. or, or sexual behaviors. But here, here you've got this this man that is resorting to just eliminating all these lives yeah. just for his own purpose. He got himself in trouble and he's just killing people to try to get himself out of trouble. And now I'm going to use that phrase and tell my daughters that in about three years once they start dating. (laughs) Once they start, I like that. This is what Paul Hole says. (laughs) Well, you need to take a breath because we're off for a week. I don't know what you're going to do without me. Have some more kava. (laughs) Oh, I'll I'll come up with something, Kate. I'm sure uh... you'll take a break. You won't be doing anything between now and next week. But take a week off, and then I will see you the following week. Awesome. Take care. Thanks. This has been an Exactly Right production. For our sources and show notes, go to exactlyrightmedia.com slash sources. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Research by Marin McClashen and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Our mixing engineer is Liana Squillacci. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. Our artwork is by Vanessa Lilac. Executive produced by Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hardstark, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow Buried Bones on Instagram and Facebook at Buried Bones Pod. Kate's most recent book, All That Is Wicked, A Gilded Age Story of Murder and the Race to Decode the Criminal Mind, is available now. And Paul's best-selling memoir, Unmasked, My Life Solving America's Cold Cases, is also available now. Follow Barry Bones and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase Barry Bones merch.